0: Uh, As the kids are in the room this morning, I want us to begin with an exercise engaging our voices. I I mean, they are some of the people in our church who most love to sing. It's one of the the beautiful aspects of of learning from kids. Um, And so we're going to begin by singing a brief chorus together, okay? How many of you remember singing this little light of mine? Right, I, I remember this song. I'm, a, I'm assuming kids still sing this today, e- even if it might be a little bit individualistic, which we'll get to later. Um, but for those unfamiliar with this song, we got the words on the screen, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to lead us in singing. My kids always get really nervous at this, this part. But let's, let's sing out loud together. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. great, you guys, wonderful. So, so the, this, thong, this song is theologically rooted in what many to believe is the most famous sermon ever delivered, the Sermon on the Mount. In that sermon, Jesus tells his disciples, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. He warns about the, the dangers of hiding this light and, and then says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. There is a way God's people are to live. They are to shine light. They are to show people God's glory. There is a world who does not know him. There is a world of people who have rejected him. God's people are to shine light on God's character and God's glory. So recently, we've been working our way through a preaching series titled Evangelism, Doing Justice and Preaching Grace, Shining Light. This is the work of evangelism. When Christians live as evangelists, they shine light on God's character. They shine light into the darkness and expose sin and brokenness. As we move forward within this series, this morning, we come to the topic Evangelism and Social Justice. And as a, as a springboard for this discussion, we find ourselves in the 58th chapter of the book of Isaiah. We are here because Isaiah often uses the language light. God's people are to be a light to the nations. This is actually what Jason Schaefer t- t- took and taught us through last week. You'll find this expression of light 22 times uh, used in the book of Isaiah. And so, fittingly, we're going to use Isaiah 58 as a springboard for our discussion this morning. Now, before we go too far, I know some of us may hesitate when we talk about evangelism and social justice. One of the reasons we hesitate is because the term social justice is kind of cliche. We don't know what it means. We don't find clear instructions in Scripture to be about social justice. And in our current cultural context, it's very much a loaded term. I mean, are we talking about hunger relief, combating sex trafficking, caring for orphans? Are we discussing hot-button issues like health care legislation and who should not be in the military? I mean, if a particular issue can be labeled as an issue of social justice, well, then we better not oppose it, because who wants to be about social injustice? Now, we could certainly debate whether or not Christians should care about a whole host of issues. And we could debate also how Christians should get involved in alleviating poverty, whether that's through politics or policy, or, or whether it's through the work of the church and how the church should be involved But at the end of the day, anyone who is familiar with the Bible knows Christians should be generous towards those living in material poverty. This is not up for debate. Christians should care for those who are weak and needy. Christians should care about those living in oppression. When we say Christians should care about social justice, this is what we mean this morning. Another reason some may hesitate at discussing evangelism and social justice is because you don't like the pairing of the terms. Evangelism, social justice. While they may be two different things God's people should be about, ultimately they're separate. I mean, we see that social justice is about the horizontal, how we relate to others. And we see all sorts of churches that have confused the gospel with a gospel of social justice. Evangelism, on the other hand, is about preaching. After all, the book of Romans teaches in order for people to be saved, they must hear the gospel. And how can they hear if no one preaches to them? This is what an evangelist does. let Let me push back on this for a minute. How one speaks about caring for the weak and needy, how one lives in caring for the oppressed, those things very much shine light on our understanding of God, His generosity, His character, and our understanding of man and our sin. It's not either evangelism or social justice. It's both end. This is sometimes referred to as holistic evangelism. This morning, we'll work to gain a better understanding about the relationship between the two. And to do so, we're going to look at at two two reasons social justice is vital to evangelism. Let's begin. Reason number one, to shine light on sin's perpetuating cycles of poverty. So so scripture does not really seem to provide Christians a responsibility to abolish poverty. Poverty exists for a multitude of reasons in a world infected and affected by by sin. However, from from the time the Mosaic Law was given, Scripture has taught there are ways God's people are to interact in the public sphere that will either serve to perpetuate cycles of poverty or serve to eliminate them. On this next slide... I've listed several Old Testament passages describing how God gave his people instructions to live to break cycles of poverty and social disparity or confronted them when they did not. And and this is a small smattering of what you'll find. In these passages, you'll find laws for God's people to provide and care for the most destitute in the land, to, to periodically cancel the debt others owed, to provide excess resources to the poor and the sojourner living among them, to oppose the oppression of individuals and particular people groups. God teaches his people to live in such a way to avoid perpetuating cycles of poverty. Yet God's God's people often failed to live in this way. Why? Well, sin. In Isaiah 58... This is the type of sin Isaiah is confronting. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways. As if they are a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. The Israelites in this passage, they engage in daily religious practice. They study God's word, They gather with God's people. They give to the church. They even engage in the spiritual discipline of fasting. But something is off when it comes to their religious works. Let's continue. Oh, we're missing. Where are we at? Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it. These Israelites were experiencing some sort of suffering. And in their suffering, they become self-absorbed. They have the arrogance to tell God, we're doing your religious duties. We're doing your religious works. We're meeting our end of the bargain, God, but you are not. God responds, Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice be heard on a high. God's, God's people lived with a spirit of entitlement. They sought their own pleasure. They oppressed their workers. They were more caught up in winning debates and arguments There were particular sins, particular sinful patterns that were perpetuating cycles of poverty. Because Isaiah cared about shining light in darkness, he couldn't help but shine light on sin patterns that perpetuated such cycles. Christians often fail to shine light on these types of sins. Whether it's our church affiliation, the political party we align with, the the religious leaders and political figures we look up to, we don't like to acknowledge sins of oppression and abuse, taking advantage of others, looking down on people groups. We may be bold in shining light on, on those who do not align with us, but we're sheepish and shameful when it comes to shining light on the sins of the people we identify with. This type of behavior, it serves to undermine the credibility of the gospel. Many of you know, I recently had the pleasure of attending a gathering of Acts 29 leaders. And as I mentioned last week, one of the highlights for us was sitting around with a table of church planners from across the globe. And one of those church planners was planting in Ireland. And for those of you unfamiliar with Ireland, what we know is that it has moved quite rapidly as a na- nation steeped in Roman Catholicism to a nation rejecting religion altogether. I asked this church planner why, and he said, you, "You know, you could look at a number of factors. You could you could attribute this shift to a number of underlying conditions. But really, the tide of the nation turned." the day the Roman Catholic Church acknowledged their silence in addressing sins of sexual misconduct and sexual abuse by their clergy. The church had been unwilling to shine light on this darkness, and it undermined the credibility of the church. When the gospel we proclaim fails to shine light and acknowledge sins of abuse and sins of oppression, sins rooted in racism, or sins of greed, whether it's justifying those sins or deafening silence on those sins, it undermines the credibility of the gospel. The evangelist who is seeking to proclaim the gospel must be willing to acknowledge and shine light on sins that perpetuate social disparity and and perpetuate poverty. So as we wrestle through issues of evangelism and social justice, there will certainly be a sense, what do I do now? Uh, I'd like to help us answer this question with a few other questions for us to think through. One question now, a couple questions later. Question number one. What sins do you need to shine light on perpetuating cycles of poverty? Many of us are willing to shine light on sins like pornography, uh, adultery, Anger, bitterness, laziness, drunkenness. But we're unwilling to acknowledge, to confront sins perpetuating poverty and oppression. I mean, when was the last time you had a cup of coffee with someone and you told them you were concerned about their lack of concern for the poor? What type of sins might we need to shine light on? One, entitlement. People in the middle class, the upper middle class, the wealthy among us, we very much struggle with entitlement. We struggle with greed. But rather than take the form of jealousy, it may take the form of hoarding. While I'm presented opportunities with, uh, where people are in need, I can make all sorts of excuses why I shouldn't give to someone in need and whether I should keep the money. I mean, I'm a good steward. I need to keep a hold of those resources. And there may be grains of truth into what, I, what I'm saying, but there also may be a sense that I feel entitled to that money. I'm not giving it away. I'm not going to give to others. Like the, like the Israelites in chapter 58, we will not give up the material possessions God has given us. Two, uh, elitism. This kind of comes in how we, we think about giving our resources away, right? There's a sense of some people deserve our resources, some people may not. And so we definitely have a tiered approach to looking down on others, right? There's a sense that because of sexism, because of ageism, because of classism, because of educational background, we may believe people, some people are worthy of our generosity while others may not be. And so we have to be aware that elitism can, can be a factor in how we're generous with our resources. Three, escapism. Many of us move to rural areas or the suburbs because we want to escape from the more destitute. We want better schools, even if those better schools benefit from inequitable spending on schools in other areas. We want our private backyard and our private swing set and our private swimming pool and our master bedroom with our private fireplace. Uh, those of you guys who know me know we have a private fireplace in our master bedroom. It, it was justified, though, because we bought a foreclosure. Um, we, we do this so we can avoid the messiness. We, we embrace the private so we can avoid the messiness of living in close proximity with others. We want safe neighborhoods that are safe for us, but they aren't necessarily safe for people of a different class than us. Now, now, am I saying that if you didn't give money to the panhandler holding a sign off the interstate that you need to confess entitlement? Absolutely not. Or that, that because our church may be lacking in cultural diversity and is predominantly middle class or upper middle class, we are guilty of elitism, I'm not saying that. Or if you live in suburban and rural contexts that you struggle with escapism. I mean, that may be true, but it may not be. Here's what I am saying. We need to acknowledge that there can be sinful motivations for not giving away our resources, for how we decide who does and does not receive our time and energy and for where we choose to live. Sinful motivations can certainly play into those things. The first reason an evangelist cares about social justice is a willingness to shine light on sins perpetuating cycles of poverty and social disparity. Reason number two, to shine light on God's character in full. There's a question posed in one of my favorite books about giving to the poor, caring for the poor, about social justice. It's called When Helping Hurts. And it's it's a question every evangelist needs to wrestle with. Why did Jesus come to earth? How you answer this question will significantly form how you present the good news of the gospel. For example, if you believe... Jesus came to be a good teacher. You will, you will shine light on his teaching as moral lessons and that we need to, to uphold those particular beho- moral behaviors to be consistent with those teachings. But you will fail to shine light on his sacrifice for sin. Conversely, if you believe Jesus came to earth to sacrifice himself for sins so that people can go to heaven... You will shine light on an individual's sin and the importance of praying the sinner's prayer as an expression of belief so that one can go to heaven. But you may fail to shine light on how Jesus ushers in a new kind of kingdom intended to restore health and beauty and freedom to people who have been affected by sin and sinned against when we fail to comprehensively understand and communicate why Jesus came to earth, we fail to shine light on his character in full. Like many of us, the Israelites Isaiah is addressing in chapter 58, they misunderstood the character of God. We've already seen that they believed he was some sort of divine slave master who was withholding blessing from his people and they misunderstood his posture towards those living in poverty and oppression. Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your flesh. God tells his people, my character is to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, to give the hungry food, to provide shelter for the homeless, to ensure the one who is unclothed and exposed is taken in and warmed. God cares for the hurting. This is the God Isaiah seeks to shine light on. When an evangelist lives in ways and speaks in ways about God caring for the hungry, the needy, the oppressed, he or she shines light on God's character in full. Recently, I had the pleasure of reading a biography of George Mueller. Here's a picture of George. He's a pastor who lived in the 1800s, and one of the things that was going on during that time was orphans were treated poorly. They were overworked in factories. They were denied basic health care. And there were few orphanages that existed, and those that did exist avoided the most destitute, those without living relatives. or those who were born into the lower class who were believed to have little potential to contribute to society. Here's an excerpt from Mueller's biography. When he first arrived in Bristol, he had been deeply moved by the common sight of children begging in the streets. And when they knocked on his own door, he longed to do something positive to help. Mueller saw the brokenness of his city. In Bristol, certainly people believed in God, but they didn't understand God's character in full. They believed in a God content with orphans abandoned in the street. So George and his wife decided to open their wallets and their home to orphans. They decided to educate children in spite of their class, something many believed at the time was a waste of resources. They would do this to shine light on God's character. When you read his biography, what what you'll find is that, George, really, the, the idea of caring for orphans was secondary. Ultimately, the thing he wanted people to know was God's character, that he was a generous God, that he cared for his people. The God the Mueller served cared about the oppressed and the sinned against. Mueller wanted people to see God's character in full. So here's another question for us When you look at the brokenness of our city, how could God's character be more fully known? When you, when you see when you see people living in brokenness, when you see people who are hungry, when you see people who are weak, where is God's character not known? How, how are you moved when you think about the oppressed? Individuals living in poverty, people who are weak and needy. What breaks your heart? P- perhaps it's children living in foster care, or maybe it's families living and caring for children with disabilities. Maybe it's single parents who've been abandoned by a spouse or experienced the death of a loved one. Or maybe it's unwanted babies with mothers willing to take the lives of their own children. Or maybe it's the teen mothers who are told by culture they should abort the baby rather than give life to that baby. They're rejected by their culture. Many of them are rejected by their families. Sometimes they're even rejected by their own church. Maybe it's young women serving as prostitutes or individuals living in prisons. Maybe it's older individuals who've been rejected by culture, living out their days alone and destitute. Maybe it's individuals coming home from combat, who are struggling with PTSD and anger and depression, who find it difficult to hold down a steady job. Or maybe it's refugees who've lost loved ones who were forced out of their homes, who have to figure out how to live among a people who speak a different language and value different things. You see, even in the land of plenty, there is not a shortage of opportunities to care for the weak and needy. More than anything, it is taking the time to pause and pray and let your heart be broken for the weak among us. And before you get overwhelmed, On how to get involved, here's another question for you. Who could you engage social justice with? One of the things I believe we think about social justice is that I must do it alone, I must care for the weak and needy independent of others. But this type of thinking is certainly not consistent with the biblical picture. When Jesus said, Let your light shine, he wasn't talking to one person. He was talking to a community of people. This is why we may not ever let the kids in our church sing, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. The language really should be this light of ours. We're going to let it shine. Let me read you another excerpt from Mueller's biography. By the morning of October 1st, Mueller had again to record that he had not a penny in hand, but help was on the way. In the middle of the morning, 10 shillings arrived with a note which read, your heavenly father knoweth you have need of these things. Trust in the Lord. About five minutes later, Mueller received 10 pounds from an Irish sister through her banker in London. At the same time, he heard from Tetbury, a village in England that three boxes containing articles to be disposed of for all the children were on their way. Two hours later, 14 small donations amounting to nearly 30 shillings were given to him. In the book, you'll find story after story of individuals in the community at large, they're giving financially to the ministry of orphan care. You'll find stories of the workers in the orphanage sacrificing salaries. You'll even, find, you'll even find stories of orphans surrendering the little money they had to give to the work of the ministry. So the question is, who committed themselves to caring for orphans? Was it George Mueller? Or the people giving resources to the ministry of orphan care? Of course, the answer is both. Now, unlike unlike many of us who often gives to ministries financially so we can feel good about ourselves, the individuals giving material resources to the ministry of orphan care, they sacrificed much during a time when material resources were scarce so that God's character would be known. Caring for the poor, battling oppression, serving the weak and needy, living and talking in ways that shine light on God's character towards such people, it is not an individualistic endeavor. It's a corporate one. And when we do this, this idea of living as light, of shining light, holistic evangelism, God promises we will experience light and blessing and opportunity in greater measure listen to isaiah if you pour out yourself for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. Authentic evangelists, courageously preach good news of salvation, and they talk and live in ways that care for the weak and needy in our city. They shine light on a cross and a Savior who poured himself out for the poor and the broken and the needy, for the spiritually bankrupt, This is the Savior we serve. He sacrificed himself for me. He sacrificed himself for us when we had nothing to give. And as God's people, we image this Savior. As we do this, God's light breaks forth like the dawn. God's people are known for their justice and their mercy in the midst of an unjust and unmerciful world. First City Church, may we be this type of church.